So we're in a series called Summer Psalms, or Summer of Psalms, actually, and um, we are, this is week three, so Pastor Chris took a week, and Nathan took a week, and I'm, I'm back for a little while here, and I'll be back, I, I won't be in the pulpit every Sunday this summer, but um, I'm back today and for the next couple weeks. Um, so really excited to be able to walk through the Psalms. Last summer, we just did Psalm 119 the whole time, we just camped in that one Psalm, uh, this, this year we get to kind of cherry pick a little bit more. We literally just picked psalms out of a cup and uh, that's how we picked the order of, of what we're preaching and when. And so we let the Lord kind of decide that, which is sort of silly, but kind of fun. Um, so, so Psalm 40 is what I got to uh, preach today. And um, this is a great psalm, but it, this psalm reminds me of uh, this old spiritual song. It's called uh, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've seen. Uh, maybe you've heard that. Um, and it's, it's, uh, the first line is simply this, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. And one of the things that um, the Psalms show us is that while that, those sentiments may feel true, they're not actually true. Um, you may feel like nobody knows what you're going through and what you're suffering. And you may feel like Nobody understands your sorrows, but the, the Psalms actually show us a different thing, which is that uh, there is someone who knows, and there is someone who cares, and there is somebody who has actually done far more than just know or care, but has actually come into our world, entered into its brokenness, and uh, has dealt with it ultimately to bring us eternal life. And so we're we get to look at Jesus today in that, and, uh, and yet the Psalms do help us, and they do speak to us um, emotionally, at the emotional level, about the troubles of our world. But they don't just leave us sinking in our trouble, which is the good news. They show us that God is with us and for us in the midst of those troubles, and they show us that we can actually move forward um, we don't have to just sit in our, in our sorrows. We can move forward and move towards the Lord Jesus because he, he actually is moving towards us. And so uh, the Psalms have always been helpful for, for us when we get bad news, right? When we, get, um, when we get hurt by a loved one, when we get a medical exam that comes back with bad news, when, when we're rejected or... Um, overlooked or when we feel like our lives are spinning out of control, the Psalms serve, so many of them serve as an anchor for us and a way for us to pivot our hearts to Jesus. Um, and so that's absolutely true of this Psalm. This is probably one of the uh, quintessential Psalms when it comes to what I'm talking about of taking the troubles of the world and yet pivoting our eyes to uh, the Lord who is our help and our, and our deliverance. And that's actually the title of this psalm. If It's not titled that way by the scripture writers, but the commentators and the translators title this. If you have headings in your Bible, it says, My Help and My Deliverer. Um, and that really is what it draws our hearts to. It's to the Lord for, for help and deliverance in the midst of trials. So um, this psalm, Psalm 40, is broken up into two main sections or two big kind of categories. The first is um, 
what God has done for us. And the second category is how we should respond to what God has done for us. So that's really where we're going to go today, is just look at these two realities. What has God done for us? And then how do we respond because of that? So let's start uh, the first half of this, the first eight verses, take us through what God has done for us. So let me read, I'll read all eight verses up front here, and then we will, uh, we'll talk about what we're seeing and we'll back up. And so it says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to go uh, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Um, so as, as we see this first half of the psalm, what we're seeing is the work of God in his grace towards us on full display. As he comes into the mess of our world and does for us what we do not deserve or cannot do for ourselves. But what's vital for us to see is that this psalm is not ultimately or primarily about King David or even about us, but it's ultimately about Jesus Christ. We, we know this actually explicitly that this psalm is about Jesus because the New Testament quotes this psalm. And I love when the New Testament quotes the Psalms because it just takes so much guesswork out of interpreting what it means. It just tells us what it means. And, and that's a great thing. And so we're going to go with it. Um, but the Psalm here, not every Psalm is quoted in the New Testament, but of all the quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament, uh, the majority of them are from the Psalms. Um, by, kind of by a lot, actually. Isaiah is a, a second book that gets quoted a great deal, but the Psalms are quoted almost more than any, definitely more than any other book and by quite a large margin. And so the Psalms are used to teach us theology and the New Testament writers understood this. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, this, this passage is quoted in chapter, uh, verse, actually verse six through eight is quoted directly in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you want to turn there for a moment, I've got it up on the screen as well for you. Um, Hebrews 10, we'll start in verse 1 and work our way down to verse 10. Just again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we've got to go. But I want you to see that this psalm is about the work of Christ. And that is vital for our, us to understand what the psalm has to teach us. If we don't understand how uh, Psalm 46 through 8 is applied and understood uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit in the New Testament, we're, we're not going to get the fullness of meaning if, if we just look at it on its surface. So, so look at uh, Hebrews 10.1. It says, For since the law, 
And that's, that in context here, it's talking about the sacrificial system when it says law. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? All right, so let's follow the, the train of thought here real quick. He's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, that the law is just a shadow of the true reality that is in Christ. Right, so there's shadow and there's substance. Old Testament points us to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in this context. And so because it's just a shadow and it's not the true, true thing, it's not the substance, it can't actually take away our sin. So taking, you know, taking these sacrifices and killing these animals doesn't actually get rid of your sin. If it did, then they would have stopped doing it because it would have dealt with sin. That's his, that's his point here. Verse 3, he says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. The purpose of the sacrificial system was to remind God's people of their need for him in this system of sacrifices. For, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here's the point, though, verse 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So there's our quotation. Psalm 46 through 8. He quotes it, but notice what he says in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he said these words. Now, we have no record of Jesus actually saying these words. The point of the writer here is that Jesus didn't have to physically say these words. He embodied these words. He lived them out. He fulfills them. And he goes further to say in verse 8, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. Jesus does away with the first, that is the burnt offerings and sin offerings, in order to establish the second, which is his, him doing God's will. And by that will, doing what God wants, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you see this, this passage that we're looking at in Psalm 40, and you can go back to Psalm 40 now. Um, this passage is about the finished work of Jesus Christ. It, it is about what Christ came to accomplish. Now, how much of this did David, as he wrote these words thousands of years ago, did he understand? I don't, I don't know, probably not the fullness of it. The New Testament clarifies and makes, makes clear what uh, we are to understand about this. But we need to listen to this. We need to understand that the New Testament interprets this for us, and we don't have the right to interpret it any other way. The scriptures are clear that the finished work of Christ for us on our behalf is the point of Psalm 40. 
And that's what makes the rest of this psalm, all the verses that go before uh, verse 6 through 8, and all the verses that come after verse 6 through 8, are actually helping flesh out the beauty of the gospel in this passage. So that these words are applied through through the lens of Christ, and then we get to apply them to our lives as we live in him. Okay, so with that kind of as the framework, let's back up to the top of Psalm 40, back to verse 1, and we're going to just walk through how these things can be true in light of the fact that Christ is the sacrifice for sin that dealt with it once and for all and has now brought us fully to God. Okay, verse 1. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Um, So here at the top of Psalm 40, um, we are seeing David write, obviously out of a place of pain. We don't really know the full context of this psalm as far as why he wrote it or in what situation he was in. We know David had lots of problems. Um, We just know that this is a psalm of David And so we don't have all the context, but clearly we see the pain. He heard my cry. He's he's in trial. He's in difficulty. And so he he is pointing us here to the issue of patience in the midst of trials. He's showing us that we can wait patiently for the Lord because Jesus Christ is lived and embodied patience perfectly as he endured the cross. As he went to the cross, he was patiently awaiting the will of God in that moment as he dies for us. So we, leaning into the patience of Jesus, can be patient and wait upon the Lord in our trials. We're reminded by this verse that the Lord works in his timing, in his ways, um, and, and when it's appropriate. And when it's perfect, that's why Paul can say to the Galatians that it was when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time, it took thousands of years for the Lord to send Jesus to redeem the world. And now it has taken thousands more years for Jesus to come back and we're still awaiting that day, right? So the the patience of the Lord is something that we can wrestle with and, and don't always embody very well, but by God's grace and through his spirit, we can embody patience. That's why it's listed in the fruit of the spirit. It is, it's in the list of the fruit of the spirit because patience grows in us as, as we lean into grace. So David's writing here through the inspiration of the spirit that he waits patiently for the Lord. And I know if you're in a season of suffering and trials and concerns and questions and this is not going to necessarily be the best news you've heard right in this moment right you want you want action and you want it now you want God to fix all of your problems we all do and there's going to be a sentiment of that in this psalm towards the end actually and we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment but this is a this is the heart of a Christian is to patiently wait for the Lord because he will respond in his time. And he did in Jesus ultimately. And he will again as he brings us home or comes again for us. Look at the end of verse one. He says next that he inclined 
to me and heard my cry. That God inclined to me. So what does inclined mean? Well, it means he leans in, right? To recline is to lean back. I've got, I've got a great chair in my, in my living room. I can recline and it's a glorious thing. Hopefully you have one too, uh, right? You recline, you're just like enjoying life. But God doesn't recline from us. He inclines towards us and he hears us. In the person of Jesus, this is truly and fully embodied, right? That, that Jesus, by definition, is God in flesh. He comes into our world. He comes near to us. He doesn't pull away from us. He doesn't withdraw from us. He comes near to us, and he hears us, and he listens to us. And listen, I know, I was just talking to someone yesterday who is, who is expressing that he just doesn't feel like God hears him. He's, he's praying and he's hoping and he doesn't feel like God's listening. And let, we all can feel that way at times. But the scriptures remind us that that's just not reality, even though it may feel like reality. We are still patiently waiting on the Lord, but we can be assured that he draws near and that he listens, he's hearing us, and he cares about us. So that sentiment in the song that, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen and nobody knows my sorrow is not true. Somebody does know. Somebody does hear. Somebody does come close to you in the midst of that. He doesn't pull away from your hurts. He actually draws even nearer to you in your hurts. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 5 can write these words, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. God hears your cries and he wants you to cast those cares upon him because he truly does care for us. Next, we see this in verse two. This is probably the most amazing verse in the whole, arguably in the whole passage. It says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So, of course, David is writing from a, his human perspe- perspective and is simply saying that God delivered him out of the trouble he was in. But when we read this passage through the, the lens of Jesus Christ, which is how we should be reading it, because everything's about Jesus in the Bible, but we know explicitly from, from verse 6 to 8 that this is about the finished work of Christ. These words become all the more amazing that God doesn't just deliver us from our earthly troubles, but he truly does draw us up from the pit of destruction. Jesus Christ draws us up from hell, which is where we deserve to be. He doesn't leave us there. He draws us up. He pulls us out. He, he gets us out of this miry bog, this, this just sinking sand that we're stuck in and we can't rescue ourselves and he pulls us out and he sets our feet upon a solid rock that is himself. And he makes our feet secure. Jesus pulls us out of this bottomless pit that we were all falling into. And I was I'm reminded of a, of a sentence or two that um, Pastor Ray Ortland uh, wrote in a commentary, not on, on this passage explicitly, but he was talking about the same concept. And, and here's what he said. He says, how can we jump out of a hole that has no bottom? 
there is only one way. We hear the gospel again. Jesus Christ loves you. Not the rehabilitated you, but the real you. The you down in the abyss. And he welcomes you to himself. See, that is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of this whole thing, is that Jesus came to do God's will, to be the sacrifice and offering that we needed someone to be, to cover us of our sin. And he, in, in coming into human flesh and living a perfect sinless life and dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, he comes into our world and he pulls us out of this pit of destruction. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And that's what he does for us. He pulls us out and he sets our feet upon a rock. Verse three, he puts a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Because God saves us and rescues us, he puts a new song of praise in our mouth for him. That's gonna be an ongoing theme throughout this psalm. So we won't touch on it specifically much here, but we'll keep seeing this idea come back. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them that they are more than can be told. David here is acknowledging that the only way to truly be saved is to trust in the Lord. Blessed, that word can be translated happy, fulfilled. It's used a lot in the Psalms. Fulfilled is the person who makes the Lord his trust. We turn in humility to Jesus and these things become true for us and of us. We can't turn to the proud and so often the proud are within us, not outside of us, right? We can, be, we can be turned inward to pride. We need to lay aside our own pride. We need to, to not run after the proud in our world. We need to make the Lord our trust and we should not run after lies. We need to run after the truth that is in Christ. And then we're told that he has multiplied his wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. Think about that. Think about the fact that the scriptures say that God has multiplied his thoughts toward you. God in Christ, because of Jesus, does not stop thinking about you. His thoughts are continuously multiplied toward you and me. Nothing can compare. And then it says in verse 6 through 8 that Jesus does these things through his sacrifice and obedience. So that first half is uh, summarized in this, that God is putting on full display his grace. And his grace is embodied in Jesus. His grace is embodied in the work of Christ for us and that he has pulled us out of this bottomless pit we could never pull ourselves from. And all we have to do to get in on this is to trust. But now the psalm turns in verse 9 through 17 towards the response of a human heart that is believed and trusted in Jesus. What are the markers of a person in our life that, that uh, should exist as we believe in Jesus? 
So let's, let's look at these. Verse 9 and 10 says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So, so what we're seeing here is that one of the responses of a human heart towards Jesus and what he's done to save us and pull us out of the mire and the bog and set our feet on a solid rock that is himself, one of the things that happens in us and through us is that we proclaim his grace to others. So King David is writing, right? He says, I've told the glad news of deliverance. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. It's like he's not just holding it there for himself. He's not hoarding this grace. He's speaking of his faithfulness and salvation. He has not concealed it from the great congregation. He continuously speaks of it. And listen, we, we, you know, we need to see this more and more grow in our lives. Um, I'm not saying that in a way that to make you feel bad if you're not constantly Jesus-juking people, okay? We don't need to Jesus-juke people, but we do need to talk genuinely about what God has done for us. That's one of the ways in which God draws more people in. And, and here's the thing is, all of this flows from and because of what we've read in the first eight verses, that if, if Christ has truly saved us and redeemed us and pulled us out of, out of this miry bog, if, if we realize that what we actually deserve is hell, but what we get is heaven and glory and Jesus and forgiveness and healing and all these beautiful things that we get in Christ, if that's true and we really believe that, then why wouldn't we tell people about it? Again, you you've got to figure out how that works within your life and, and, and what the best approach to do that is. I think there's wisdom in this too. Um, people are receptive to people who are not jerks and those kinds of things. And there's lots of wisdom that flows into this, but we, we need to see that there is a place for proclamation of grace and God can use those stories to help others draw in. So we see proclaiming grace. Look at verse 11 and 12. Here's a second thing we see. It says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So there's two sides to this. This is an interesting, interesting couple of verses. Um, on one hand, we are seeing him acknowledge that God is never restraining. He's never holding back his mercy. And then he acknowledges in verse 12 that all of the evils in his life are so overwhelming that they, they're blinding to him and they outnumber the hairs on his head. So which, which is it? 
right? It, like, it's almost like, wait, you're, you're, it's almost like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Either, either God's mercy is just so there and you're, you're this amazing, perfect person because Jesus gives you mercy or you're this awful, wicked person whose iniquities are drowning you. Which is it? And the answer is it's, it's both, right? We're, this is what the Christian life is. It's an acknowledgement that our iniquities have overtaken us. We cannot see and our evil actually succumbed the, the number of hairs on our head. Like, and I know for some of us, that's more than others, right? But you, you get the point. The hairs of your head, ideally, in an ideal situation, that's what we're talking about. The, this is where uh, we, we can get so overcome by our, by our sin, that if we're not pivoting back to this good news in verse 11, we're going we're gonna to be crushed. And, and I, I think about this a lot, and I tell people a lot, that if we knew the fullness of how bad we are, we could never stand under that weight unless we have an unrestrained mercy from God towards us. And look, and look at this. So, so one of the responses that we should have because of grace is to rest in mercy and love. What we need to do is find our rest and our peace in the fact that Jesus covers every sin. Every sin. All of them. As, as real as they are, as painful as they are, as overcoming as they may, may be at times. The grace of God and his mercy is not restrained. It is not held back. His faithfulness will be for you, for you forever. That's what he says at the end of verse 11. He says, your, your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. That's the kicker in this. Is that yes, we are wretched people but we've been saved by amazing grace. That's the kicker, that God's grace will never fail to keep us and preserve us in him. Never will. Despite the fact that evils may encompass us beyond number and our iniquities may overtake us, the grace of God is not harmed and hurt in this. It is just ever flowing towards us. Our sins, they are many, as mercy is more. That's what we're being reminded of right here. All right, one more. One more thing to respond. So let me recap. We're proclaiming God's grace. We're resting in God's grace. Thirdly, look at verse 13 through 17. It says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. There are, there are two things happening here. One is 
um, the psalmist David here is writing and begging God to actually do something and do it quickly, right? He, he, says, it, he says in verse 13, make haste to help me. Don't slow down. Don't wait. Hurry up and do something. He says that about his enemies, which we know King David was a king and there were all kinds of political enemies and military enemies and enemies within his own family as Absalom was trying to conspire to take over the throne. David had all kinds of things that he wanted God to deal with and deal with quickly. He even says it again at the end of verse 17. The last line in this psalm is, do not delay. Oh my God, there is a sense in which it is okay for us to ask the Lord to come in response to something and to respond quickly. But that's natural and that's normal, but we also need to remember how this psalm starts. It's kind of interesting that it begins with, I waited patiently for the Lord, and it ends with, do not delay, oh my God. It's like there's almost... This, again, very human situation here. We, we, we acknowledge we need patience. We also acknowledge we need help and we need help now. So as we look at this last, these last couple of verses here, we, we need to recognize that what we're called to is to respond to God in patience and wait on him, even in the midst of our willingness and need to ask for help now. I think that's the overarching thing is that Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, lived and died and rose. He's done all the work that has to be done. That work is finished. Now we're resting in that, trusting in that, and awaiting the time when he comes to wrap all this up and, and heal the whole world again. But in the meantime, as we live in a broken world, as we live in a fallen world, we, we need to recognize our our need to rest in him in patience without feeling guilty about asking him to help. I think that's where the balance is. So we need patience to know that God will come to our help when he's ready, when it's right, when it's the best time. And we can also not feel guilty about asking him for help now. But, but let, let's close with this. Um, Verse 17 says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. The psalm reminds us that we have nothing to bring to the Lord to convince him to help us. We have nothing but filthy rags. And, and Martin Luther c- captured this really well as he laid in his deathbed he wrote on a small scrap of paper and he placed that on the bed table bedside table and those who were with him after he passed read read these words that he scribbled on a piece of paper and simply this we are beggars this is true what does martin luther mean by that well i think the meaning is that our whole life as christians should be a testimony to the undeserved grace of God. That we need to recognize, in fact, that our tendency as human beings, as sinners, is to seek 
God's favor through our works and to be found good in our own hearts. And, you know, we must fight against that. This psalm reminds us that we are beggars. This is true. And we are totally and completely dependent on God for help. And yet the psalm reminds us that he takes thought of us and he helps us and he delivers us. So even though we are completely needy and completely dependent, he is our help and our deliverer. That he actually takes thought of you and me and he comes to our aid. What a great God. What an amazing Savior. And so as we wrestle with the struggles in life and the, and the impatience that we're so prone to and, the, and the, just the desire to see God do something and do it right now in exactly the way we want him to do it without recognizing that he actually knows better than us and has the perfect timing for us, we need to be reminded again that God takes thought of us He has not forgotten us. He has not stopped caring about us. And yet he often calls us to be patient and to wait. This is how James in the New Testament reminds us of this. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See what James is telling us? He's reminding us that the Lord has a perfect timing and he pivots our hearts to three things. One is to nature and says, look at the farmer. Farmer plants those crops and then what does he have to do? Wait. Right? Maybe you planted your gardens. You got to wait. Hopefully good stuff will come, unless you're terrible at gardening like me and just gave up on it. But um, for those of you who have more steadfastness and perseverance than me, you're going to get a harvest if you wait and you're patient. And then he pivots us to the prophets and he says, think about the prophets. Think about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These men had terrible lives in so many ways in in the sense that they were abused and maligned and mistreated and not listened to they're broken records and yet they are commended because of their steadfastness now and and then you've got job the probably the the pinnacle biblical example of a man who suffers and stays steadfast to the lord in the midst of it James is telling us that we can do the same thing, but why? Because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
Isn't that the point of this psalm, ultimately? To show us that God is compassionate and merciful, to save us ultimately from our sins, to pull us out of, of the mire and the, and the bottomless pit, to set our feet on solid ground, but to also care about us in the day-to-day. What an amazing Savior. And so whatever you're struggling with today, wherever your, your heart is heavy in, just know that God is for you. He inclines to you. He hears you. He knows you. He cares for you. And he is your help and your deliverer. And he is all of that because of Jesus. Because Christ came to be for us, the one and only who could take away, take away our sins. So with that said, let me pray for us. And we'll, we'll continue in our time of worship today. Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us with far more mercy than we could ever deserve or ever earn. We pray that we would rest in these things, that we would rest in you, that we would be patient for you, that we would proclaim you as, as you lead and give us opportunity. We pray, God, for these things, these these reminders we've had from your word to be true in our hearts and to seal in our hearts um, what we need. So we pray now that as we just shift gears a little bit and to singing and partaking of your table, I pray that you would draw our hearts back to the truths that we've just seen and that you would ultimately draw our hearts to you as the one who died and rose for us. Would you help us to rest in you and not to try to fix all of our own problems, but to trust you to do it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.